guys, it's your boy JLU with another edition of Home Known right here on the Swole Miss feed. If you're a first-timer, the Home Known podcast features discussions with the rock stars of Mississippi. And again, I use that term in the broad sense. Not just musicians. Our first episode, if you'd like to go back and listen, was with filmmaker, improv performer, and artist... Glenn Payne, and I told you at the end of that show that I'd really be changing it up for episode two. I did not know at that time just how much I'd be changing it up. I had plans to interview a SIP-based stand-up comic, and I still plan to conduct that interview, but it occurred to me as I enjoyed spring break with my babies, visiting my folks in Jacktown, I had a SIP celeb right there next to me who should be interviewed for the show. If you've never heard of Joe Usry, you are probably not from central Mississippi. For just about as long as I can remember, he has been recognized and approached by randos in public every time he ventures out of the house. Why is that? Because working in the car business, he has been a memorable mainstay on local television commercials for decades He is a man with an absolutely electric presence that not only translates to TV, but pretty much jumps off the screen. You don't have to be his son to get that he is incredibly funny, and you certainly don't need to know him to benefit from hearing the story of his career path, his peaks, valleys, and ultimately his hard work paying off. Am I biased? Sure. But the story of Joe Ussery truly is a worthy podcast series unto itself. So in this interview, I didn't dig too deep into personal and non-work-related subjects. Here is just a piece of a truly inspirational story for anyone looking to work their way up in any industry or break the proverbial glass ceiling. Here's my pops, Joe Ussery. I grew up on a chicken farm and that was the primary income, and it was four of us boys and one girl, and but we had cows and hogs and laying hens. We had a laying hen house, but the income come from uh, broilers, and so heck, we had our own eggs and milk cows, and you know we had hog killing every year. We had a smokehouse out behind the house. We had a Huge garden. The only things that mother would get at the store would be uh, sugar and flour and flavoring and, you know, stuff like that. Did you have much money? No, no. No, didn't didn't have a whole lot of a whole lot of money. In other words, we'd have to we we pretty much had to get creative to come up with things to to uh, play, but it, we had a lot of work that had to be done too, you know. You worked so, in that chicken house a lot. Yeah, yeah, worked in the chicken house a lot. Had to, you know, milk the cows and slop the hogs, and, you know, everybody had something they had to get done. So. I would think just about any job after the chicken house would seem like a, a kind of fun. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, people have asked me, said, well, well, when you were growing up, what did you want to be? And I said, well, I really didn't know what I wanted to be. I just knew I didn't want to feed any more chickens. 
I mean, because those chickens, that's a 24-7 deal. I mean, heck, I remember it nights, you know, when a, a storm rolled in or something, that, that then those chickens would start, like, piling up and they'd suffocate. So we'd have to go down and start walking and walking through them to keep them from piling up on top of each other and suffocating. And, of course, you know, keeping mind, you know, this back in the 60s, so there's a lot of things they have now in chicken houses that they didn't have back then. Then all we had was like, you know, roll-up curtains and everything was like manual labor. Just, you know, looking at that, that being the work you did when you were younger, did, the, did joining the Army just seem like a logical thing? It, it did. It did. It, well, in fact, keep in mind I didn't get married until like after I had went in the Army. But it did seem like the Army was a logical choice. I mean, I was kind of a patriotic kid anyway. You know, for some reason, I don't even remember what roots that goes back to. But, you know, I just loved our country and what it stood for. And so it seemed like there was no good jobs available. And like I say, I was sick and tired of feeding chickens. And so it seemed like the logical choice was to join the Army. Did you know, I mean, did you have any friends doing that at the same time, or did you, you just... Yeah, yeah. In fact, a bunch of us guys one night got to talking and decided it was like four or five of us, and we were having a good time and all that kind of stuff. And we was like, well, man, hey, uh, why don't we meet up at that service station at late tomorrow morning about daylight Unless all of us go join the Marines on the buddy plan. We was like, heck yeah, man, let's do it. Let's do it. So the next morning, uh, the only ones that showed up was me and not Nestor. And his nickname was Not because he was so short. And so me and not Nestor showed up, and we kept waiting and waiting. And it was Chuck Parks and... I don't remember the other guys. It was several of us, but me and Knott showed up, and we waited, we waited, we waited till after daylight, and we were waiting, and finally we said, what the heck, we're just going to go ourselves. So we haul off to go join the Marines, and we get over to Meridian, and the Marine office wasn't open. But the Army office was open. <laughs> So, so a huge difference that makes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the difference in being a Marine or being the Army mm -hmm. is the difference was which office was open. Yeah. So, so <laughs> the Army office was open. So we joined the Army, joined the Army on the buddy plan. Man, not Nestor. Now that buddy plan only lasted through uh, basic training, and then after and then after. Yeah, then I I didn't see him again. Now I saw his brother on the DMZ in Korea, <laughs> but I didn't see him again after that. That buddy plan didn't last very long. Mm. They just get you in there with that. Yeah, plan. yeah, yeah. They just get you. They get you <clears throat> so, in there with that. I ended up going overseas. Got sent to the uh, DMZ in Korea. I came home on leave from Korea, and that's when. 
Ben K got married. We got married while I was home on leave, and uh, and we had our honeymoon at the Stonewall Jackson on Highway 80 in Jackson. We had one night there. Then we come back and stayed in this old house trailer that was out by my, my mother's house. And then I had to go back to Korea after that. And so then when I come back from Korea, my first assignment was in Fort Benning, Georgia. I was in the school brigade and we were training the airborne rangers so you can imagine how much fun that was getting up and running five miles with them every morning and doing everything they're doing mm -hmm. then i got transferred from there to fort knox kentucky which is in radcliffe kentucky and so of course when then when i come home that it was being and k then that was going from there to Fort Benning and then from Fort Benning to Fort Knox. Mm -hmm. And then I got out of the Army three months early to go in the National Guard for a year. What, what kind of credentials do you have at that point and what kind of job do you get? Yeah, you know, that's a real good question because my credentials in the Army wasn't exactly one that you could... Uh, use in civilian life unless I was going to go to work for the mafia. <laughs> so I didn't exactly want to go to work for the, for right. the mafia. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, you know, back at that time, it was a situation whereas employers loved to hire, you know, veterans and people that had been in the Army. And uh, my first choice was I wanted to go into law enforcement but I joined the Army at 17. I was in the Army three years, so I was 20. So my first choice, I want to be a highway patrol, uh, state trooper. Was not old enough to be a state trooper. I had to be 21, I think it was then. So then I said, well, how about a game warden? A game warden, you had to be 26. So then the next choice was city law enforcement and there was a opening in uh, Newton and it was paying $500 a month. So I was thinking, well, you know, that's what I was making in the army and that's providing me a bunch of other stuff too. So I decided not to do that. Did what they told me to do. I went to the employment office and so I'm talking to the lady and she's asking me questions and she said, well, have you ever thought about anything in sales? And I said, well, what's that exactly? <laughs> so she started telling me, and I'm like, well, you know, I don't know if I could do that or not. She said, well, you know, when talking to you, I kind of think you might should consider that, so let me send you on an interview because you need some practice. So she sent me down to Sears and Roebuck, and Forrest had a catalog sales store, so I went there for an interview, and about three hours later, I had the job. <laughs> so that, that was my first job coming out of the Army was with uh, Sears. Did you start to develop pretty quickly your, your skill set? I, 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 I did. It was kind of like a natural. I enjoyed it, you know, getting to meet different people and, you know, talk to them and communicate and, mm -hmm. you know, if 
find out what their needs were and stuff like that. And Sears pretty much sold everything from washing machines to chain link fencing to siding to carpet to whatever, you know, a person could need. So you talk about how Sears had like everything. So like how important is it to really know and understand the product versus your ability to communicate with people? It'd be easy to say they go hand in hand, but I almost think it's more important to be able to communicate and not not just communicate, but listen. Mm -hmm. You know, to be able to hear what the person's saying as far as what they they need and they want and what they can afford, you know, what their what their budget is and then then you have to know the product in order to know them what's gonna be the best product to stay within the rams of what they want and need. So how do you, didn't you go from there to Radio Shack? I was young, but for some reason, you know, I wanted to, to uh, you know, like when I was in the Army, I wanted to be an officer. <laughs> so, so then I, I wanted to go into to, uh, management, and I can't remember exactly how it happened. I had somebody that's like, hey, you should talk to them at Radio Shack. They have a manager trainee program. And so I went and interviewed with Radio Shack, and they gave me a job, and then it was to, my, my first location was in Vicksburg, training to be a store manager for Radio Shack. First store that came open after I was trained was in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, on West 70th Street. That's where Shreveport is. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, then we moved from Fixburg to Shreveport, and I got my first store, which was the store was on the bottom of the the list of stores, which it was number 22 or 23 in the district as far as sales and performance goes, which was, I, I didn't realize at the time, but ended up being a blessing you know, was to get one that's on the on the bottom of the of the list. As it turned out, and I was working hard. You know, I had the, the work ethic, and I already knew how to communicate with people and and listen. And and so, I you'd come to work at say if the store opened at nine o'clock, you know, I'd normally get there at eight o'clock and then the store would close at eight or nine o'clock at night and then I'd end up being there until 10, 11 at night doing paperwork. Mm -hmm. And so Radio Shack had these sales each month and they'd send you a list of stuff to order for that sale to be prepared for the sale. And that was the kind of stuff I'd do after I closed the store. Well, I'm inexperienced but you know I'm eager enthusiastic and motivated you know all of that kind of stuff wanting to succeed so I'm filling out my order for the sale the next month then I look up and here comes this bob truck he backs up to the front of the store and he throws up the back of the truck and we're like talking and laughing it was like when I was first opening up in the morning and I said, 
man, you must have everything for every store in Shreveport. He said, no, all this is yours. I said, what? He said, yep, all of this is yours. I said, heck, I ain't got enough room for all of it. He said, well, it's all yours. I'm talking about I had speakers and amplifiers, and I mean, I had more stuff than you could throw a stick at. I had this, it, it was literally, the warehouse was full, and I stacked it up to where you had to turn sideways to move down the, the aisles to look at what you wanted to get. So I go back and I look, and what I've done is I extended my weight in the quantity ordered. <laughs> so, so if it weighed 10 pounds, I ordered 10 of them. <laughs> so <laughs> that's one of those kind of things you never forget, you know. So, so then... I, I realized what happened, how bad I'd messed up, so I called my uh, district manager, which was Arnold Manning, a great guy. I mean, I, I just had so much respect for him, and I called him. I said, Mr. Manning, I am so sorry. I said, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. He said, spit it out, spit it out, boy. And I said, well, Mr. Manning, I messed up on my sale order. He said, how'd you mess up? I said, well, I took how much it weighed, and that's how many of them I ordered. What did you? And of course, you know, he goes into this field that, you know, he was like, wasn't calling me his son and all that right, kind of, right, you know, right. what I'm saying. So, and, and then after that, he just busted out laughing. He said, he was laughing at me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, and, and then after that, they changed the policy to make sure that couldn't happen again, you know. So that was a policy-changing event, company-wide. But then what it done, he told me, he said, well, the only thing, the only choice you've got is to sell it. So guess what? Mm -hmm. I sold it. Mm -hmm. I sold the fire out of it, and I go from the bottom of the list to about third or fourth on the list, and I never looked back. Mm -hmm. I mean, man, it was like game on. Mm -hmm. And so, and all of it was because of that, <laughs> a mistake. A mistake. Yeah. And so then I got promoted from that store to the top store in the district, which it was in Shreveport. It was in Shreve City, which was over close to uh, Barksdale Air Force Base. Is there a a particular person that you remember that kind of led you toward the car business or what, how did that how did that happen well it's it's kind of strange the way that it that it happened because i'd always had an interest in cars but was, my interest was I always wished i had a nice car to drive yeah and so I not found like, not like how they run right exactly they, exactly yeah. of course because i had you know one of my my brothers, David Joe, he was always working on cars and tinkering on cars when we was growing up. He'd take one apart that was running okay just so he could know how to put it back together. I didn't have that interest. I just wanted a nice car to drive. So I found out that the salesman got demos. And for people who don't know what that means. Yeah, that means they, get, they furnish me with a car to drive 
every month, you know. Nice so, one. yeah, a, a, a nice new one. And so that that was kind of what attracted me to the to the car business, and then so I go on a interview, and I won't call the person's name because the the extended family second generation is still in the business. The first place I went, and I interviewed, and the long and short was they told me they said you'll never make it in the car business. So. I'm like, oh, okay then. I kind of took him at his word, and I got a job selling nuts and bolts and fasteners and rivets and stuff like that with a company that it was outside sales. And so I called on uh, Dan McKinney Dotson, and I was talking to the service manager, and I was knew he had a need and it was one of those kind of things that ever objection he had i was overcoming his objection and so he's like stood up and said here come with me so i was like well oh you got somebody else gonna do the buy and he said just come with me so we go upstairs and he introduces me to dan mckinney said it's dan mckinney this is joe usry you need to hire this boy selling cars Hey, I'm interrupting for just a sec. The Joe Ussery interview will continue in just a moment. First, I want to let you know that this Swole Miss feed is just a part of the Ussery network of podcasts. If you like this show, by all means, please subscribe and leave us a positive rating and review. But if you'd like to access more Swole Miss content, as well as true crime shows, comedy, and serious news opinion, all Mississippi-focused, visit usrenetwork.com. You can find the link in show notes that will take you to all the other podcast feeds, all our social media, and how to become a premium subscriber. Right now, we are well into our flagship program, 13-2, investigating the disappearance of 13-year-old Lee Ochi from Tupelo in 1992. But there's a whole lot more going down and a whole lot more in the oven. Hope to see you soon. Now back to the legendary Joe Ussery. And so then when they give me the job at Dan McKinney, it was like they said, well, you know, we're going to train you and all that kind of stuff. And so I turned my notice in, and then I got there. And so met the sales manager and said, well, you know, look, I'm new salesman and I'm supposed to start my training today and he just kind of laughed at me and goes to the back and he comes back out and he gives me a pad that I find out later is buyer's orders you know for where you fill out the information from the customer he said here you go if you have any questions just ask another salesman so so that was that that was was, yeah that was it that was my that was my training how long did it take you to get rolling where you where you knew uh, at least what that is you're holding in your hand and like what the job is? Well, it I would say I, that I was motivated because I had a, a wife to think about and children to think about, so I was properly motivated, as they say, to be a quick learner. So 
probably within a a week, I kind of knew the the basics of you know communicating with the customer as far as what they wanted and needed and being able to you know help them get a car and sell them a car and all that kind of stuff. So I I think my first full month that I sold 10 cars and then after that every month I sold more, you know, 15, 20, 25, you know, and it got to the point to where as that that the hardest part wasn't getting them sold as it was getting them cleaned up and ready for <laughs> delivery. At that time I could sell new or used, okay. but we were primarily selling new at that time. It was a situation where as, uh, the price of gas was going up, you know, from 35 to 40 cents to 60 cents a gallon, 70 cents a gallon, you know, and, and I remember Dan McKinney saying, if gas ever gets a dollar a gallon, I'm going to throw y'all the biggest party because Datsun's got good gas mileage, and so people that's concerned about gas mileage was buying Datsun's. And so... That party happened sometime. That party happened. <laughs> that party happened. That gas hit a, a dollar a gallon, and he threw a big party. But we were trading for, you know, Cadillac sedan bills and... Buick 225s and, you know, we were trading for a bunch of big cars and, and we didn't have a big used uh, business. And then then his general sales manager, because then again I ended up wanting to go into to management and then back then, based on how many I was selling, I was making a good enough income that then for me to go into management, I was going to have to take a cut and pay. Mm -hmm. But I was willing to take a cut and pay because I knew that I wanted to go into management. Mm -hmm. And Mervyn Wood, that was his general sales manager, ended up buying the AMC and Jeep from, from Dan McKinney. And so he hired me to be his sales manager mm -hmm. and so then we moved up on top of the hill and it was a business that was selling mattresses and we converted that into a car lot and we were selling amcs and uh, jeeps and renaults mm -hmm. and and i was a sales manager and i i absolutely loved that i mean but i was making less money so i knew Something had to give pretty quick, yeah. and everything was really going real well. And then it was sixty minutes. Did a show on the Jeep CJ5 rolling over and killing people. And so when they did that, it basically killed our business. I mean, we could have locked the doors because our primary vehicles were. Jeeps, mm -hmm. and so it ended up causing the guy, uh, Mervin, ended up going bankrupt, mm -hmm. uh, basically because of, of that. Mm -hmm. And so then I, I knew at that point, you know, I had a family depending on me making a, a living, 
And so when I had jumped from sales to management, management to sales, and gone back and forth, I knew what I could do selling. And Paul Moak had a real good reputation as far as, you know, hiring good people and keeping them, you know, people staying there a long time. And so I went to Paul Moak, interviewed, got the job, and I was working on the used car lot, selling used cars. I could still sell new, but they were across the street. But if I had a customer, I, I could. But I was, Take them across the street. Yeah, take them across the street and sell them a new car. But my, my primary purpose was selling used cars. So at that point, I made a commitment to myself that, hey, I'm going to make a commitment to doing this which I think was a, one of the keys to my success was realizing that jumping back and forth was not working, that I had to get in something, make a commitment to it, 100% commitment. So I made a 100% commitment to selling. I'm going to sell used cars. And then once I know that I've been successful there, then I'm going to try to go back into management. So I ended up selling used cars there for five years. Mm -hmm. And each year, I sold more and made more income. They were great people to work for, you know, high character, took care of the employees, took care of the customers. So that was kind of a real good experience. Mm -hmm. And... So then from there, Rick Hendrick, that owns Hendrick Motorsports, that they made the movie Days of Thunder based mm -hmm. on him, was already had 20-something dealerships, was getting a Nissan point, which is now the Nissan on I-55 North. So I got a job. He hired me to be the sales manager at the, at the new... Nissan store. It, you notice the name had changed from Datsun to yeah. Nissan. Yeah. So I, that was that was my first real full-fledged manager's job. In other words, I started the job as a as a manager, and I I committed to that, gave it a hundred percent, and uh, then. He ended up uh, selling out. Mm. After about two and a half years, he sold out, wanted to keep me on. He talked me into going to a store that he had out in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth in McKinney, Texas. And so I go out there, and I'm having to go back and forth. I knew that wasn't going to last very long. I mean, you know, being away from... Family and then plus there's too much concrete in Texas for me, mm -hmm. not enough trees. Yeah. And so after a period of time, I I, I quit that, and then I come back to to uh, Jackson and I got a job uh, selling cars, mm -hmm. and and it was at uh, Blackwell Chevrolet selling used cars. But I knew I wanted to go back into management that that was my 
my goal. Back then, you was working, you know, six days a week and putting long, hard hours in. And the store closes when there's nobody left, right? Right. When there's nobody left. When the last customer leaves, you know. Ended up getting a job with, um, I I never will forget it was Robert uh, Boyce had bought the Hyundai store that was next to Blackwell. Chevrolet, and it was a nice Hyundai store, but keep in mind now we're up to uh, the late 80s, 1988 or 89 or somewhere around in there, and and Noel Daniels worked for Robert Boyce back then, and so Noel called me on one of them big old bag phones back then. <laughs> he calls me and says... Uh, Man, I'm gonna give you a job as a sales manager, and shoot, I got super excited. So, so went to work, and me and Noel worked together, and it was uh, called Boyce Imports, and we ended up selling Hondas, Isuzus, Daihatsus, and you know, Isuzu. yeah. So what? And was that your first dealing with Noel, or was there? I I've had known. Noel over the years and knew him, you know, real well and thought a lot of him, had a lot of respect for him. And we both just about worked ourselves to death at that store. I mean, in fact, we'd look up some nice, it'd be 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and then we're the two out there pulling the gate to to lock the gate when the last customer left. Honestly, it was, man, I'm working so hard. I'm putting in so many hours. This is something a lot of people don't uh, realize was the fact that I was kind of doing the job of a general sales manager, or a lot of times they ended up pulling uh, Noel and sending him over to Brandon to the Ford store. So I was doing the job of a general sales manager or general manager getting paid as a sales manager working all these hours so I was like I I got to get some relief mm-hmm. and so I ended up taking a job and this is almost sounds like a joke but I took a job with the postal service being a mail carrier you know, hey, look, I got all these benefits, you know, vacation, and sick days. Low and, yeah, no pressure, mail. just yeah. carry the mail and all that kind of stuff. That's what it looked like from the outside. <laughs> but then when I got that job, and I guess it, I, it's, it's really a huge blessing because it let me know who I was and what actually motivated me and pushed me because, you know, when you're working a job where when you punch that clock and it makes that noise, then that's when you start getting paid. And then when you punch it again and you're leaving, then that's when you stop getting paid. Mm -hmm. And whatever you're getting paid per hour, if it's $10 an hour or $15 an hour, then, hey, that's what you're going to get paid. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I never had a situation like that before. And honestly, for me, it kind of took out a lot of the 
motivation because it wasn't a situation whereas if I had a house payment coming up that I could work extra hard and sell more and make sure I had that house payment covered, it was like all I could do is try to get in more hours to work. Not the same dynamic. Yeah, not the same dynamic. But at the same time, it was a hard work and it was challenging like physically and mentally it was not near as easy as I as I thought but it was a 90-day trial thing so I, I, I made a deal with myself I want to I don't want to leave not knowing if I could make the cut meanwhile Robert Boyce was calling me want me to come back and it's gonna make me the officially make me the general manager I made the the 90 day cut. So, you know, in other words, I was able to have the job carrying the mail and turned in my notice and quit and went back to work, but I was a totally different person. In other words, I knew Mm -hmm. that the car business was for me, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't punching a clock, making so much an hour, so, I was more committed than ever. Got the general manager's job. We were blessed. I got some good help. Uh, and that was when I was there. That's when I was able to hire old uh, Bino, mm-hmm. Ted Enstrom. That's where we first got together. We brought the numbers up, uh, kindly turned the store around, and Robert sold the store. But, you know, he told me he was selling the store, so it wasn't a big shock to me. And he had said, well, you know, when I sell it, I'm going to pay you for X number of months, you know, after we sell to give you time to find something else. Well, then the people that own North Park Mazda Acra, uh, Elton BB and Jim McNatt, had talked to Robert to see if they could come talked to me about coming up there to be general manager while I was still running that store. Mm-hmm. And so at first, when they first started talking to me, I said no, no, and it was just based on some things I had heard. And so, but then finally I ended up taking that job. And so ended up being able to get Ted to, to join me there. I was blessed, able to hire some real good people, worked hard, and the store had had never made a profit. We started making a profit, sold more cars than the store had ever sold. And so just super, super blessed. Mm-hmm. Some of the working conditions were not the most favorable in the, in the world, and but we've been successful, mm-hmm. and I was keeping the the records and tracking it how good we were doing, and I and I in the back of my mind my goal had always been to own a store or to be partners in a store, mm-hmm. and so I ended up after over two years, then I decided 
you know, the working conditions, the hours and all that, it was so bad. I was never being able to see my family. I was working so many hours, so I kind of said, you know, hey, I'm going to quit this even if I have to pick up cans to make a living because, you know, these hours are killing me. So I started looking. I heard that the Chevrolet dealership in Brandon really needed a, a general manager. They they were hurting. And so I reached out to them, sent a resume, no response. I uh, ended up, then I called uh, Sandra Rogers, which was the principal, and she said, well, I never got the resume. Someone must have intercepted it or whatever. So she said, send it to my home address. So sent it to her home address, and then she set up a meeting, whereas I came out to her house and met with her and uh, John Rogers, and I showed him my information and my success my track record. You got a pattern established. Yeah, yeah. at this point I got a pattern established whereas I can show the facts, not just conversation, but I can show the facts, show them the facts. On a handshake, we made a deal that if, if I could come in and do the same thing at that store, that then after a year they would allow me to purchase 20% based on what the value of the store was when I started. You know, not what it was after we became successful. Yeah. And so to their credit, and a lot of people was telling me, man, you crazy, you got to have this in writing and this and that. And I was nervous, I was very nervous, but after a year we had had much success. I mean, we had been super blessed. Mm -hmm. After a year, they did exactly what they said they'd do. They sold me a 20%, and we kept growing each month and selling more, selling more, selling more. We just very blessed, super employees, and Ted was with me there. Uh, and so it, it, it was... We were ginning, and it we really got to ginning to whereas the space that we were in was too small, and uh, there was only one real piece of property that that was left, and so then myself and Sandra uh, talked about it, then brought John into the picture about I'm like you know we need to buy this piece of property and it was 21 acres, buy this piece of property and build a big, nice new store. And so uh, after a lot of discussion, they ended up having an auction and the, either the morning before or the morning of the auction, Sandra and I talked and the amount that we had put as the most that we would pay I told Sandra some of the people that's going to be there. I said I don't think that that's going that that's going to get it, and I said we got to have it. I mean we just got to. So she agreed. We go to have the auction. 
bunch of people interested. As it kept getting higher, it got down to myself and one other person that was bidding. Mm -hmm. We wanted it more. We got the piece of property bought. The store's still growing, flourishing, selling more. Now I even had a place where I could put some additional inventory to whereas we could really sell mm -hmm. more. And we had the attention of General Motors, so they were getting us what we needed more. And a, and again, it's, I'm, it wasn't me. It was just that we were being blessed based on the fact of the group of people. And it was great ownership, you know, with Sandra's involvement, John's involvement. It was just a, a real good situation. So we, we uh, built the, the new store. It was beautiful. Uh, and at that point, I had been there over 10 years and ended up making a decision after we built the new store, moved into it, having a lot of success, then uh, John and Sandra ended up buying my 20%. And then one thing I left out during that time, we had purchased a Honda store that was in Vicksburg, a small store. And so we were being blessed there we sold more Hondas out of that store than had ever been sold since it had been there. So Honda really liked us a whole lot. But then when I sold out mine, I sold out the Honda part and the Chevrolet part. It was a, everything that I owned, I, they purchased. Mm -hmm. And But I said that about Honda because of the fact that had a good working relationship with them. So then I kept talking to Honda, and that's how then I got the Honda Point myself and my boy got the Honda Point. And, and uh, Brandon is a brand-new point. Uh, I knew exactly where I wanted to, to build it. Uh, Bob agreed. We purchased the property. And uh, and again, you know, you ha you kind of have to have a lot of people to believe in you when you're doing something like that. I talked to numerous banks uh, about lending the monies to buy the land, the construction, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Ended up that Bank Plus was the most aggressive and believed in the project the most, and so we ended up uh, going with partnering with Bank Plus to buy the land, build a new store. So we we did that, and that was in um, 2005. And, I mean, we come out of the chute just <laughs> super blessed. I mean, we, we it was like people was fighting over who was going to buy the first yeah. car. Yeah. And I remember Corby Usry, was like, man, I've got to buy the first car. I want to buy the first car so bad. And so he he ended up, he bought the first car, and it was even before we got the computers working, so we had to use a pen to write out everything. But he bought the first car for his uh, daughter. That's cool. And 
So, and we were very blessed. And I, then in uh, 2008, uh, I sold my part of that store to uh, buy Boyd. Mm -hmm. The store has continued to do well and to be blessed and Bob's done super well. But I knew I didn't, wasn't ready to throw in my, my hat but you know what happened in 2008 is like an economic bomb went off, you know, and it was fear in the streets. And so, but I was determined to do something else, and I was looking and looking and looking. Then in, uh, I started, Ted and I then started talking to Chrysler. It was probably in 2008, or at least by 2009, about buying a Chrysler store on I-55 North. And they had made it a company store at the at the time, so the store was open, but they wasn't doing that well. Mm -hmm. And But the price they were asking me was very unreasonable. The economy was very unstable. And at that point, you really didn't even know if Chrysler was still gonna be around. Yeah. You know, it was very shaky. Mm -hmm. So then finally going back and forth, back and forth. Then in 2010, I ended up uh, making a deal with Chrysler and purchased the Chrysler store. But at that point, they had closed the store like a year earlier. So the store had been closed for a year. And then we opened it back up in 2010. <clears throat> And I, I was for the first time the sole owner of, of that store. After all that time. After the after. First time with just your name on it. Yeah, just my my name on it. But then I was very blessed, and I had uh, Ted Enstrom, and I'm gonna say him as a a partner because, you know, without him I could not have had the success. Then uh, Noel Daniels joined us, which was like, I mean, that was kind of like instant gratification there, I mean, in other words, because, you know, then we had us a real team. But again, Chrysler's on shaky ground. We don't, we don't know. I'm very nervous. I put everything on the, on the line. And because it, it, you know, takes a lot of capital to do one of those deals. We did the deal very blessed and kind of started out, you know, slow and even had a few months there where it's like, man, <laughs> can't stand many more of these yeah. kind of deals. Mm -hmm. But, but again, we were blessed to get the right kind of help and sales kept getting better, service kept getting better. Uh, we kept, became profitable and more profitable. Uh, and, and then I had several people that was trying to buy the store. And heck, before, nobody wanted it. You know, everybody had passed on it before I ever did the deal. I was like the last in line. <laughs> So they started wanting to buy the store, and you know, I, I reluctantly uh, sold the store 
in uh, 2013. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you decided to appear in a TV commercial? And like, how did it, how did it come about? I think I had wanted to, to appear in a TV commercial, but I never had the opportunity. But in 1985 or 86 was the first time that I appeared in a commercial. And I, I remember it uh, very well. I even remember the, the spot. It was in the middle of the summer and it was it was super hot, and I had Alan Thompson was working with me at the at the time, and then Alan Thompson did the spot, and back then they had these shorts that they called jams. You probably don't remember, but <laughs> no, I jams. I think I them shorts say, yeah, them jams come down like right past your knees. I think it was, and it was like men. Alan did that spot, and I, I remember part of my line in it was saying, it's so hot, even Al's wearing jams. And then we had the water hose, and then either he turned the water hose on me or I turned the water hose on him. Yeah, and I turned that water hose on old Al, said it's so hot, even Al's wearing jams. So my, 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 that was like the first TV spot, and it was a lot of Fun. I mean, we made it funny and mm -hmm. entertaining, and hey, ever from that time forward, every chance I got, I would do a, a TV commercial. Like how how often to this day do you get recognized when you leave the house? Every day. In fact, it it's so it's so funny because I'll have people that are that'll see me in a store, and then then they'll be uh, following me around, you know, and I, and I know what's up, but I don't tell them, but I know that they're thinking, man, I know this guy from somewhere. Where have I seen this guy? Was it on the wanted poster at the post office? How important has, uh, has Katie, your wife, been to your success in your career? Well, I can honestly say that 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 has been the biggest blessing because of the fact that she has always been my cheerleader. Always. She has always encouraged me. I mean, and trust me, we've seen some dark times. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I mean, we we've been to the point of where as we were using credit cards to pay credit cards. I mean, but never once did she complain or ask, you know, why you know why is your paycheck not bigger or she's always been my cheerleader. She always encouraged me. So if I had a bad day, I could always know that when I got home, 
that it was going to be okay. Yeah. And and she's always told me that look, money's not everything. If we lose everything, we still got each other and we still got family. And she it wasn't just lip service. She meant it. Mm-hmm. You know, we met in the ninth grade. When we got married, I was 18. She had just turned 19. So, I mean, we go way back. And But I'd have to say, and I'm glad that you asked that question because that's something that a lot of people overlook because of the fact that they don't realize how important it is to have that, that spouse to lean on that's going to be encouraging and be that cheerleader. And she always has been. You call yourself like possibly retired, you know, Mm -hmm. we can never count you out. I've learned, (laughs) but, um, how, how do you want to be remembered when you are done? Hmm. Gosh, that's a that's a real good uh, question, and I, I I think that I want I would want to be remembered as someone that loves his family and takes care of his family. Someone that's honest, takes care of employees and takes care of uh, customers, believes in God and believes in country and believes in being fair and that everyone is equal regardless of where they come from, what kind of education they have, how much money they make, what color the skin is, you know, that everyone be treated Barely. You know, I often tell people who ask me about my dad, if I was the biggest podcaster in the world, hey, if I were to win the Nobel Prize, if I was elected president of the United States, I still would not have matched the kind of progress my father has made over the course of his lifetime. To have been born with so little and get no encouragement from his family, and though we did not get into it in the interview, To be treated like an unwanted afterthought in his early life and to achieve everything he's achieved, there's no way I could ever do anything comparable to that because I was born to a great family and taken care of very well, given endless opportunities. Suffice it to say my dad was not shown a lot of love as a child, yet he shows nothing but love to me and the rest of the fam, not to mention quite a lot of friends. Like I said, there's a lot more to discuss when it comes to Joe Ussery. For now, we'll peace out. I've got another podcast episode to work on after all. Hey, for lots of info on the other content, you can like the Ussery Network page on Facebook. That's a social media platform. You may have heard of it. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at JL Ussery. Thanks. Talk to you soon.